was chalked up to be, right? So it leaves us with a question. I just wanted to answer this just real quick, real quickly with you guys because we spend so much time teaching our kids to be good kids, don't we? Our culture emphasizes good, the importance of being good. So if we take out being good, what are we left with? Faith. Faith. That's what we replace it with. We're not teaching our kids to be good kids for the sake of being good. We're teaching our kids to be faith kids, right? Okay, so that's what I want us to replace this. The, 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 the Christian mindset of being good because somehow it pleases the Lord, we've got to remove that from, from our psyche. We've got to remove that from our heart, right? We choose not to sin because we love God and we want to honor Him, not because we're accomplishing something, right? We're replacing being good people with being faith people, right? Faith people. Everybody say that with me. Faith people, right? All right. That has nothing to do with what I'm talking about today. (laughs) But because I brought it up earlier, I wanted to bring that point up with you. So what we are going to talk about today, um, I think in February, that was the last time I spoke with you guys, and we started a three-part series on the Beatitudes, Right, Jesus' benediction in Matthew chapter 5 to, to his followers and essentially to us through the Word of God. And so uh, we're going to finish that up today. We're going to pick up the, the third part in this series. And if, as we're going through this, you decide, this is, this is good stuff, I want to know more about this, uh, you can go after service out to the lobby, and there's a sign-up area where you can sign up to order a, a teaching CD or CDs of previous teachings from Crossroads Church, not just me, but Pastor Terry and Eric and Kyle and, and all the other pastors here from now until who knows when in, in, in the past. But uh, you can also find these on uh, our website, crossroads.life, and you can, you can download them. I'm not sure what format it is, or you can just listen to them right there online. So uh, this was sometime in February, and it's titled, You Are Here, right? The t- teaching on the Beatitudes. So if you want to find it, that's where you'll find it. The, the last two teachings. So, with that, Matthew chapter 5 is where we're at. Anybody here ever used the word dude? Right, we all laugh because everybody uses the word dude. I've, I've heard guys literally carry on 10 to 20 minute long conversations only using the word dude. Anybody ever heard that before? I mean, every guy in here is like, yep. We're all nodding our heads because we know this is like the, the universal man word, dude. When you walk into a room of guys and you could just say, dude, and then you'd get in response, dude, dude, right? No, no matter what the question, there's an answer, dude is the answer. Guys can stand around for hours and say, dude, dude just means a million different things, Right? It means a million different things. But there are times when we just don't have the words to describe what we're saying. There are times we just don't have the words to describe what we're actually intending to say. For example, the word love. The word love. It means a million different things to a million different people. The other day, I was getting my kids breakfast. I I poured some cereal for them. And they're at the table, and they're, they're doing their, their eating thing. And the littlest one says, Dad, I love my cereal. 
And of course, the older one pop, pipes up and says, then you want to marry it, right? Anybody ever have that happen in their house? Obviously, she does not want to marry the cereal. She made that perfectly clear, I think, by punching the older sister, and then I had to get involved and referee the whole thing, and ding, 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 you know, it's it bad, right? But we say things like, like, I love my dog, I love my fish, I love your hair, I love your shoes, right? We, we say I love about a whole lot of things. We might even go to, to the uh, garden store with our, with our wife, and, and within a span of 10 seconds say, honey, I love you. And then seconds later, I love this dirt. Are the two the same? Of course not. We're not comparing our spouse with dirt, right? The, the, the stuff that has manure mixed into it and stinks and, and grows weeds more than flowers, right? We're obviously not comparing the two things, but we still seem to use the same word to describe the same thing. And really, that's, that can be kind of scary these days, can't it? I've, I've talked to parents before who have said that their daughter or their son had come to them and said, just in passing, I really love my friend at school. And the parent's response was, well, that's normal these days. That's kind of the culture we live in. So I'm going to see what I can do to, to, to not say anything against that relationship. But instead of asking questions to clarify what they're actually talking about, they're assuming things that didn't need to be assumed, right? This word love, we assume what it means most of the time. We believe that somehow when we say this word, it infers something, and we just assume. But sometimes we can assume wrong. It's no wonder that our young people are so confused, and anybody, most people in our culture in America are confused about what this word means. Because, for, for example, um, it is absolutely normal and, and normal in, throughout Scripture where relationships were intimate relationships, but they weren't of a sexual nature. They were intimate relationships. But what our culture does is when young people have an intimate relationship with somebody of the same sex, what we do is go, our culture says, well, you must be gay. When in reality... Not necessarily, they're just having a normal, intimate relationship with a friend. But our culture seems, doesn't understand what this word means sometimes, so they, they insinuate and infer and assume other things because we don't have the words to describe what's meant sometimes by using one word. In fact, the Greeks had seven words, at least seven words, if not a couple more, to describe love. In fact, we're going to take a look at them here real quick. Let's look at them. The first one, eros meant sexual passion, right? That's, that's where we get the word erotic from. Most people can, can in, infer what that means. Uh, uh, f- uh, philia, uh, friendship, or f- phileo, we, we hear it in Scripture, right? Uh, ludus, uh, a playful love. It's an example of children playing together. Agape is a selfish and a sacrificial love. Paragma is a long-standing love, a relationship that's been going on for a long time. Philudia, narcissism, right? We all know what narcissism is in, our, in this culture, right? Um, and storge, a bond among family. Right? These are all words that the Greeks would use to describe different types of relationships and, and essentially, we have one word that describes all these things. And we, that's what we end up using a lot of times. But 
So the Greeks had, had seven words, but here's another example of when we don't have the words to describe what we're saying. Paul, in um, Galatians 5.22, he's writing about the, the, what it is like to live the Spirit-filled life. And essentially, he says this about the fruit of the Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit is a love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control kind of a thing. Right? He's using a bunch of different words to describe something that there wasn't a word for. This fruit, singular, a fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in the life of somebody, looks like this. Right? It's not an all-encompassing list of if, if you live the Spirit-filled life, these are the things that your life will exemplify. Those, those things are included, right? But this isn't an exhaustive list. He's using a bunch of, different, but bunch of different things to describe something that a word doesn't meet the criteria to, to, to describe. So we run into the same problem with the word blessed, right? It's in, in Scripture, in the Greek, it's the word makarios. Everybody say that with me. You're, you're going to want to learn this word, makarios, makarios. Right? We use, as we're reading through Scripture, we come across the word blessed, makarios, and we translate it in, into English, blessed, or, and we essentially use the word happy most of the time. But the problem is that the word happy, that's in, in the Greek, the root word is hap, which literally means good fortune or to be lucky. So in Scripture, a lot of times as we read through it and we see the word blessed, we think we'll see also it may say happy. And really what we're doing is we're missing what Scripture is saying about blessing because we, we, we seem to attach materialistic stuff to this word happy. What's going to make me happy? If I win the lottery, I will be happy. Right? Anybody else? Right, yeah. I mean, those are the kind of things we think. If I had a bigger house, I'd be happy. And then we think, I'd have to clean it. So then, if I had a maid service for free, I'd be happy. Right? We can, we can come up with all sorts of things that would really make us happy. But in reality, that's not what this is saying. But what we do is we have a tendency to apply God to the, the English definition of happy, which is, or blessed, which is happy. And we kind of make God out to be like a cosmic slot machine. Or we wake up in the morning and we pray, and it's kind of like cha-ching, right? Maybe I'll be lucky today. By the end of our day, if something good happens, we'll say I'm blessed, right? If I make it to the gas station when the needle is buried, right, I'm blessed. Or if you find a dollar on the street, I'm blessed, right? We, we look at things that make us temporarily happy as things that are blessings, and what we need to understand is that makarios is different than happy. The idea embodied with this word is satisfaction from experiencing the fullness of something. It's a satisfaction from experiencing the fullness of something. And this word describes a feeling. It's the emotion that goes with when something could not be any better when something could not be any better ever. Nothing could rob you of the joy that this thing has given you, right? Paul uses the word content when he writes in the New Testament. It's a contentment that goes beyond explanation. It's like summoning Mount Everest 
You get to the top and it's like the pinnacle of all your life's work being, being completed. That's what makarios is. It's the sense of, I don't care what happens if I got hit by a tornado right now. Would not wreck my day. I'd be good. I'd be fine. If my house fell down around me, I don't care. If I lose my job, whatever. There is nothing that's going to ruin this. The smile on your face that, that people say, hey, man, why are you so happy? Now you can say, I'm not happy. I'm makarios. Right? It's, it's this thing that just cannot be wiped away. It, can't, it doesn't go away that easy. Right? It's as good as it gets. All right, so we see in Matthew chapter 5 that Jesus went about healing people. Right, we're going we're gonna to start picking it up here. So Jesus went about healing people around northern and southern, the regions of Galilee. And he was healing the sick. He was, he was uh, healing the blind, making them see the deaf could hear, the lame could walk. People were going hundreds of miles and telling their friends about it. Man, you've got to come see this guy Jesus that's doing these amazing, miraculous things. And so, and so people were coming from everywhere to see Jesus and he was essentially, from our perspective, blessing them. He was making them happy, wasn't he? But what Jesus recognized was that even though we may have been blind and now we can see, the awesomeness of that begins to wear off. It's temporary. How many of you guys know that, that when something good happens in our lives, we get desensitized to good, and next thing you know, that good thing isn't quite good enough anymore, right? We always need something better. We always need something better. And, and this stuff's no different. And so Jesus recognized that, that people were going to be desensitized at some point to all this miraculous stuff and want more. And so he sat down with them and, and began to teach them what makarios was, what blessing was, blessing that went beyond just being temporarily happy. So remember, these aren't individual blessings, but a step-by-step course of the life lived in pursuit of God that brings about the makarios, the blessed life. It's encapsulated in Scripture between the phrases, the kingdom of heaven. So as we read through this section of the Beatitudes, the first one starts or, or ends with, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The last one ends with, and theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? So he's making a statement in between these two phrases. The first three, in fact, let's read this real quick. Matthew chapter 5, verse, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, with his, or when he was seated, his disciples came to him. And then he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, there's the beginning. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. And here's the close. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, Jesus is making a statement within those, those, two, those two phrases. And today we're going to look at the last two of these Beatitudes. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Some say that, that copying is the greatest form of flattery. You ever heard that before? Right? Copying is, is the greatest form 
of flattery. In fact, there's a couple of pictures we have uh, that are going to be up here. One, we've got dad shaving with the son, right? Our kids want to be like us, don't they? Our kids want to be like us. We have another picture here of, of a mom and her daughter. And this goes around the internet, and, you know, people get a great big kick out of this picture. But you know what? This is a heartbreaking picture because here we have a daughter who follows mom's example of what beauty is, not recognizing that she's being ridiculed by who knows how many people. This is, uh, the mom is setting this example and, and, and acknowledging her daughter, affirming her daughter, even in areas where it's not necessarily the right thing to aff- affirm, is it? I mean, this is an example that isn't necessarily a good example to set for, for, for her daughter. So it's, it's really kind of heartbreaking. But what we see is that kids copy their parents. Kids copy grown-ups. We're always, we're always emulating what we like. We're emulating the people that we like. When I was in junior high, um, I, uh, my dad, this, this was like in the, the late 80s, my dad had these shoes. I think they were called like boat shoes or something. And uh, he had a jacket that matched him, but the problem was they were pink and, like, baby blue. And, man, I wanted to be like my dad. I thought my dad was cool. I mean, he, at one point he was a power lifter. He was, he was, he was buff. And, and, I mean, I wanted to be strong, too. And I was a skinny rail of a kid. That, and I thought, well, you know, maybe through osmosis I'll get, I'll get buff. If I wear my dad's stuff, people will think I'm buff. So I, I stole his shoes and his jacket. And what's funny is he, he, he never tracked them down or anything. He was just like, whatever, crazy kids. And anyway, I took these shoes, and they were a size and a half too small. And I, I shoehorned my feet into these shoes, and I wore this jacket that was like, I could parachute out of a plane in this thing. I could jump off the roof and be like, and float down. It was just this real lightweight windbreaker jacket that was like mostly pink and had like some blue stuff on it. It looked like the shirt equivalent of parachute pants. And I wore this thing to school for months because I wanted to be like my dad, right? I wanted the affirmation of my father. And I didn't exactly, it wasn't communicated really clearly what the expectation was in order to get his approval. Essentially, it was, don't annoy me. And don't die. Pretty much, if I can accomplish those two things, I should be good, right? So really, it was open to interpretation. So essentially, I learned to get in trouble and just not tell my dad about it because I didn't want to annoy him. And I didn't want to die by him killing me for doing that stupid thing I did, right? And when I, when I began youth ministry, I used to share all these stories of all the stupid things that I did, right? And thinking that these are good, entertaining stories to be able to share with kids, to, to, to get them to listen to what the message I had to share was. And then I began to realize that as much as those are exciting things, they don't know not to do that because they're wanting my approval. And so they're doing stupid things that I'm telling them not to do because I did it, right? Listen, our kids will emulate the things that we do, not the things we tell them not to do, Right? They will do the things we do, not the things we tell them not to do. I I was with my kids in the car the other day. My oldest turns around to my youngest and says, shut up. And I was like, I wanted to turn around and be like, shut up. But she already stole it from me. And then I, I realized 
I was looking in a mirror. I, I think I said that to my kids maybe two or three times in their life. When You know, as a parent, you just blow up. When they're doing something, you just explode. Man, I, I've had those moments. But I turned to my daughter, and I said, don't talk to your sister that way. And the Holy Spirit went, bonk, bonk, right in the middle of my chest. And I went, oh, Lord. Man, I had to humble myself before my kids and say, you know what? I know where you learned that, and I am so sorry. I'm so sorry. That's not how the Lord would want you to respond to your sister, and it's definitely not how the Lord would want me to respond to you. So will you forgive me for setting that example for you? Because, again, our kids will do what they see us do. If we tell them, read the Bible, read the Bible, you need to know God's Word, but all we do is surf Facebook on our phone and they never see us in the Word, they're going to emulate that, right? Our kids will do what they see us do, not what we tell them to do or not to do. So, uh, you guys ever seen pictures of uh, kids at baseball games? They're hitting the home run, and Dad is sitting on the edge of the bleachers, and and the ball's soaring through the air, heading for a home run, and, and the boy's looking up, looking up to the dad. He's not looking at first base; he's looking at Dad, right? Because the home runs happen, and Dad's going, "That's my boy! Come on!" Right? You guys ever seen pictures like that before? And we we all want to be in that place, don't we? We all want to be that boy looking to Dad and getting that affirmation. I think that for a, a child to hear the affirmation of a father, there is nothing more important that a child can hear than the affirmation of dad, of a father. Ladies, don't get me wrong. It is absolutely important and imperative that you, uh, uh, you, you, you encourage your kids. But, but there's something about the affirmation of, of a father. And there are some of you in here who, who God has called you men to be spiritual fathers to kids that aren't even yours to be able to speak life into them. You may not have kids. There may be people that God has brought you around, families that don't have a dad. You need to affirm the kids that God puts in your life. Men, I'm challenging you to this. Affirm the kids that God puts in your life, whether they're yours or they're somebody else's. If they're somebody else's, talk to the parents first or you might get a stick in the eye, right? I mean, I mean, you, you don't want to go up to some stranger's kids and be like, hey, little kid, I got something good to tell you, right? You might get beat to a pulp. But there's a right way to do that, right? To, to talk to parents and say, hey, you know what? I, I feel like I've got a word from the Lord. Can I, can I just encourage your, your son? Can I encourage your daughter with them present, right? Encourage kids, right? Affirm them. But this, is, this scripture here, the reason I'm spending so much time building onto this is because I believe that this scripture right here is, is the home run scripture of the Bible. This tells us what, God, what gets God on the edge of, of the bleacher, saying, way to go! It's what gets God's heart pounding. And so let's look at it real quick. Blessed are the peacemakers. We're going to tear this apart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Makarios, say it with me, Makarios. Makarios are the peacemakers. This word peacemakers in Scripture literally means to take two things that are different and bring them together. It's insinuating something of heaven and something of earth is being brought together. And what's this, what Jesus is, is talking about is bringing the relationship with God and with mankind that was broken because of sin together. He's talking to people, not just about himself on the cross. He's talking about those who are following him. Blessed Makarios are the peacemakers, those who bring God and people together again. They shall be called the sons of God. We look at this sometimes, and it's easy to 
to to look at this and think that they shall be called the sons of God. Okay, they're giving a give, he's giving a title, right? The son or sons of God, and we're missing we're missing what this is saying though. This isn't giving a title. This is Jesus saying it's making a declaration. The literal word means to shout something out loud. There's a declaration that's being said here. They'll be called sons of God. Ladies, again, don't, don't get this part wrong. When it says sons of God, there's something, there's something, it includes you. It includes males and females. But understand, there's something vital about this word sons. We'll get into another time. I don't want to spend the time on it right now. But it's huge, and it includes, it includes you. If you're a follower of Christ, it includes you, right? But, but understand, this is God on the edge of the bleacher saying, way to go. Way to go. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who bring God and people together. God says, way to go. That's my kid. It puts a smile on his face. It makes him proud. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a, you're in the boat or you're out of the boat. You're in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. You're, you're his son or you're not his son. That's not what this is saying. This is God affirming, telling us in Scripture what gets God's heart pounding when we bring people and God together. That's God's heart. We, uh, we spent some time with a couple of young ladies earlier going over some scriptures, right? And, and John 3, 16 and, and 17, we've all heard it before, and we kind of view that as, well, that's the, that's the, that's the kid verse. That's, that's the verse that the kids are supposed to learn. Did you know John three sixteen and 17 are essentially the mission statement of heaven? That's the mission statement. Any successful business follows its mission statement, doesn't it? If we have a successful business that follows its business or its mission statement, don't you think that those who follow God should follow the mission statement if they want to be successful? Yeah, the mission statement, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. That is the mission statement of heaven. That is the mission statement of Jesus. We've got to learn that scripture. We've got to know it. We've got to make that our center. Instead of viewing it as, well, that's, that's the kid's scripture, man. They're supposed to learn that one, and, and I don't know if I really ever want to say that one again because people won't think I'm super spiritual. But we've got to come back to that. We've got to make that, make that a center for us, right? It's about reconciling. It's about reconciling people with God. For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only son, right? God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world that the world through him might be saved. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, let's look at that real quick. It says, And all of this is a gift from God who brought us back to himself through Christ. And God has given us this task of reconciling people to himself. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself through the cross, no longer counting people's sins against them. Right? It's our job. It's, we've been tasked with reconciling people with God. In fact, in 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says this. Peter calls you, what, what's he call you here? For you are chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Peter calls you priests. What? Man, I, I've, I'm, I can't be a priest. That's crazy talk. 
right? But that's what Peter's saying right here. We're, 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 you're a royal priesthood. Let me clarify something real quick. We have a tendency in America, when we read Scripture and we see the word you, we think, well, yeah, it's talking about me, the individual. Did you know 98% of the time when you read in the New Testament, the word you, it refers to you, the body of Christ, the body of Christ. You are not individuals the way you are in your own mind, in the mind of God. He sees you as a family, as a unit, as one. And he says right here, you are, a, you are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. You're a royal priesthood. And we've got to own that. You may think, man, I'm not good enough. Remember, being good, what's that count for? <laughs> right? Faith, that's what counts for something. The just shall live by faith, right? So, so God has considered you absolutely worthy and qualified to, to, to work in this, this process of reconciliation between God and people, this, this restoration. So what does a priest do? A couple of things. According to the context of the scripture, offers spiritual sacrifices through praise and a sacrificial lifestyle. Right? So now that you recognize your priests, what, what do we do? We, we offer spiritual sacrifices through praise and through praising God and a sacrificial lifestyle, right? A sacrificial lifestyle, and we're to point others to God. That's what a priest does. So there's five easy ways, or five easy words I want to I teach you real quick to, to start this process, right? If, you are, if this is the first time you're beginning to recognize that you're a priest, I'm going to give you five words to learn to help you walk this out, okay? You ready? All right, here we go. It's big. I got to stretch. Ugh. Can I pray for you? Can I pray for you? Awesome. I will. Can I pray for you? Learn this. Use it. Right? It's, it's our job. We're tasked as Christians with reconciling a relationship between God and people. And if, if throughout our day, when God brings somebody in contact with us and they're sharing about the stuff of their life, just like they always do at work or at home or the mall or wherever you run into somebody, instead of looking at it like it's an accident that you ran into them, recognize, oh, yeah, I'm a priest. It's my job to reconcile God and people. What do I do? Remember those five easy words. Can I pray for you? Okay. Darn it. This is scary. Uh, can I pray for you? And they'll look at you like, huh, yes. And then what do you do? You pray for them. You don't get spiritual and crazy about it. You just pray for them. You talk to God like you talk to me or you talk to each other on their behalf. It doesn't have to be elaborate. It's just saying, God, you see all this stuff that's going on in this person's life. Would you, would you minister to them? Would you help them? Would you bless them, bring them to a place of makarios in their life? You don't even have to use a big Greek word. You can just use blessed. Heck, you can use happy if it gets you praying. I don't care what you use. 
right? Can I pray for you? So we come to a place in our pursuit of Jesus where we become willing to stand between God and people to help them on board. When we get to that place, man, God says, way to go. Way to go. That's my kid. That's my boy. That's my girl. That reflects God's heart to go where it costs us something. That's what Jesus did, didn't he? And to reach out without judgment. That's what Jesus did. He didn't come to condemn the world, right? We're going where it costs us something, and we're reaching out without judgment. Which brings us to our last stop on this journey, the last of the Beatitudes. Let's take a look at it. How do we do it? We talked about, we talked about, the, uh, about praying for someone, but that's like giving somebody a fish, right? I said, I said go, go tell somebody you pray for them. It's giving, it's giving you a fish. But what's the principle, right? The principle is love. Well, what do you mean by love? There's, now we just learned there's seven different versions of love. Which one is it? Right? We're not gonna we're not gonna assume you know what that means. It, it's a, it's agape, right? It's a selfless love. In fact, the Bible talks about three of these words that we talked about and insinuates one in the Song of Solomon. You can probably guess what that one is in the Hebrew. But there's these other words that aren't even used in Scripture. But agape is 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 the most commonly used. Uh, Greek word for love in the New Testament, and it talks about sacrificial love, right? The world can't handle a love that is so giving, right? It can't handle uh, 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 somebody who serves at all costs, who goes the extra mile, inconveniences ourselves for the sake of somebody else, befriends the unworthy, tells the truth, no matter what the cost, Right? That is odd and it's unusual to the world. It's going to bring about some, some results, and we're going to talk about what they are real quickly. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Everybody in here, everybody, especially America, man, we are, we are caught up with this idea. Of we, we want to live for something, don't we? We want to have purpose. Anybody in here not want to have a purpose? We get depressed about this even. Man, I'm just not, I'm not living for anything now. I don't have a direction I'm going in my life. What do I do? Right? We can even get discouraged when we don't have a purpose. Man, we all want to have a purpose in our life. We all want to have something to live for, something that, that we can give our life to. Some people join the military. Right? We'll want to give our life to something. So, so we sign up for the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, National Guard. If that's you, awesome. Thank you very much for your service. Thank you. Some other people decide to sign up to save a whale. If you have saved a whale, thank you. <laughs> save a tree. Save a spotted owl. Right? I mean, we, we do all sorts of things to try to make a difference. Buy a Tesla. Anybody sign up on the list, right? And we all want to feel like somehow we've made a difference. And it's, it's important to us. But here we come to this final stage in our pursuit of God, this adventure of righteousness that Jesus is talking about. It's, it's a roadmap that Jesus has laid out. The first section of this talk about our surrender to God. When we come to the place where we acknowledge, Jesus, I need you. The second three talk about the work that he does in our hearts to change us from the inside out through the sanctification process. 
And these last two talk about what gets God really excited and that when we are on fire for God and we, we are chasing after righteousness, it's going to bring about some results. It's called persecution, right? The problem is in America, most of the time, we don't get persecuted as the church for living out the mission statement of Jesus, which is love and not condemning, right? We, we get persecuted because of the opposite, because we are judgmental sometimes, aren't we? We can be judgmental in our culture. And when we live out the mission statement of Jesus, when we love people who aren't lovable, when we pursue people who everybody just says, leave them in the gutter, right? When we chase after those kind of people with love from heaven, with the purpose of wanting to restore a broken relationship, man, it's going to put a smile on your face. That's what... That's what Jesus is saying here. John 15, 20 through 25, Jesus says this. Where's it, where's it at? Here we go. Do you remember what I told you? A slave is no greater than his master. Since they persecuted me, naturally they'll persecute you. Right? Jesus makes it clear that if we're going to follow after him, if they persecuted Jesus, why would they do anything different to us? In... Uh, 1938, two guys, one named Hahn and the other Strassman, discovered that if you take a uranium atom and you bombard it with neutrons, it essentially breaks apart the molecular structure of this atom. And when it does that, it releases a lot of energy. If you do it over and over again, it creates an explosion. That's the the precursor to the atomic bomb. Why am I saying that? Because you're not much different. The church is not a lot different See, we don't recognize sometimes that it's through persecution, it's through the pressures of life, it's through being bombarded with, with things that aren't necessarily happy that God uses to release an energy through the church that is the most powerful force known to mankind for good, for righteousness, for love, for hope, for healing, for future, for promise, for purpose, right? It's, it's through the stuff, the weight that we carry through life sometimes that God uses when we draw near to him through that process that all of a sudden something amazing explodes out of it. Paul, he said it like this in 2 Corinthians 4, 8, and 10. We are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying about in the body and dying in the, uh, uh, dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our body, right? We're going to go through some stuff that isn't necessarily the most fun stuff ever, but Jesus promised us that it would be, by the time we get there in our walk with him, that when persecution hits, it'll be just like when the apostolic church was hit with persecution, right? These guys went to the grave with a smile on their face. They went to the grave not denying Jesus was who he said he was or that he rose from the dead. These people were astounded and amazed and beyond the place where they acknowledged there is nothing in the world that you could do to me that would rob me of the amazing joy that I have from having walked with Jesus the time that I have, nothing. You can nail me to a cross upside down. Go ahead. You can stick me in boiling water. I don't care. 
It doesn't matter what you do to me because I am blessed. And God wants to take you, he wants to take me to the place where Makarios, right? Makarios. Let's pray. I'm going to wrap it up, let you out of here. Father, Lord, I believe...